Thank you, men, for sharing with us tonight about uh, your small church. I'd like for all of us just to bow and pray for them right now. Would all of you who are in 20, before we pray, would all of you who are in small church 20 stand up so we can see who you are? All right. Well, we know who some of the more mature couples are. Uh, (laughs) All right, let's pray together. Father, we pray for this group of men and women as they build their marriages as they build their ministries and their lives as you lead them. We pray that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will cause them to to flourish, to grow deep roots, and to bear fruit for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's open our Bibles together to the book of Daniel, the fourth chapter. Someone handed me a Christmas card this morning that has on the front of it pictures of nine world leaders, including on the front of this uh, Alexander the Great, King Tutankhamun, Julius Caesar, Maharishi, Maharishi, Yogi, uh, Adolf Hitler, Lenin, Napoleon, Buddha, and Mao Zedong. And on the front it says, History is crowded with men who would be gods. And on the inside a picture of the nativity scene, and it says, But only one god who would be man. I like that, because Nebuchadnezzar's picture could be on the front of this. Uh, He would like that, or he would have at least at one point in his life. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the great kings of the world, the ancient world. He was a man who died about 562 B.C., the month of September in that year. Approximately 7 to 15 years before that. It's hard to pin it down. Nebuchadnezzar had an experience that he tells us about in this fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. Daniel himself was about 50 years of age at this time, so you can see that, oh, 25, 30 years perhaps have elapsed since chapter uh, 2, the last time that we saw Daniel. In that time, he has served the king faithfully in his court. He has matured. He undoubtedly has matured not only in his uh, personal growth, but in his walk with God as well. This chapter, as I said this morning, is unique in the Bible because it is a personal account written in the first person by a king, a Gentile king, as a matter of fact. Probably chapter 4 is a state document of ancient Babylon, a public proclamation given by Nebuchadnezzar recounting to his entire empire the experience that he went through. Perhaps he did this in order to explain his extended absence from the throne. It is possible that Daniel helped him write the chapter, but whatever, Daniel was led by the Spirit of God to insert this into his book. You will have to decide for yourself, I suppose, as to whether King Nebuchadnezzar possessed in the end saving faith in the God of Israel. Whatever you may believe about that, you must agree with this, that this chapter is a powerful testimony of God's ability to humble the proud. 
It begins by saying, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. Now obviously Nebuchadnezzar wasn't writing to those uh, ancestors of the American Indians or people in other parts of the world, but he was writing to what he thought the whole world was, which was his empire. And it was very wide. Many different cultures and peoples now had been incorporated in the Babylonian Empire. He is addressing all of them in his greeting in verses 1 through 3. And he says to them, may your peace abound. Uh, basically, he's starting out with the word, the Hebrew word, shalom, or the Aramaic word, the Arabic word, salam, which means peace. Uh, that's not just absence of, of military warfare. But it's a word that implies prosperity, fullness of life, peace in every realm to you. He says, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Nebuchadnezzar volunteers that this testimony comes willingly. <clears throat> to him is a pleasant act to share what God has taught him. Should that not always be true in our testimonies? Uh, it is too bad that there are times we feel our testimonies are jobs that we have to perform or heavy burdens that we have to carry when somebody asks us to share a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar, the Gentile king, certainly shows us the right heart attitude about giving a testimony. He says, it seems good, it seems pleasant for me to share these things with you. He mentions two important words here. He talks about signs and wonders. The word sign refers to something that has happened, which is intended to point to the existence of God and to the kind of God he is, an all-powerful, sovereign God. Signs. He mentions wonders. A wonder is something that produces awe, amazement, or even surprise in the one who observes it. So he begins by telling us that what happened to him involved both signs as to the existence of the true God and wonders, that is, these signs produced awe in him. He says how great they are, how mighty they are. And he begins by extolling God who is eternal and everlasting in his reign. His is an eternal kingdom, quite in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar's which had just been interrupted for seven years. Now in verses 4 through 18 of the chapter, he talks about a dream. He had had an earlier dream in chapter 2. This is a different one. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. In other words, all was well. The, the empire was going along just fine. Nebuchadnezzar personally felt good. His health was fine. He was free from fear is literally what it means. He was at ease. There was nothing to cause him fright. And it says that he was flourishing. Literally it says he was growing green. That is a very vivid picture of the prosperity that was his in his kingdom at this time. But something happened that produced fear. He says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. These fantasies as I lay in my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And so what was initial fear turned to genuine terror as the king reflected on what he had seen. 
And so he called an assembly of wise men, just as he had done before, so that they could interpret the dream to him. Now in this particular case, he did not ask them to recount the dream as he had before. But he says, interpret it for me. They either could not or more likely would not interpret the dream. Because when you hear the dream, immediately you recognize that there is some disaster that is impending. And so they did not want, undoubtedly, to deliver that kind of a message to King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, it was at that point that Daniel suddenly came upon the scene. Verse 8, Daniel finally came in before me, says Nebuchadnezzar. Now why wasn't Daniel there in the first place? Well, who really knows the answer to that? It may have been on Daniel's part a tactical move. In other words, let the other guys go in and uh, show what they can, but then I'll go in and get the job done and bring glory to God in doing it. Perhaps he was trying to show the deficiency of the others. Whatever his reason, he came in at a very appropriate time in all of this. And in verses 9 through 18, we see the dream recounted. You'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar emphasizes in verse 10 and then again in verse 13 that he made this dream of his a matter of intense reflection. He says, I was looking, again in verse 13, I was looking in the visions in my mind. And so this was not a quick glance at something, but Nebuchadnezzar looked, he stared, he gazed upon what he saw in his dream. And what did he see? Well, he describes a gigantic, healthy, and fruitful tree. Actually, trees were common symbols of rulers in the ancient world. Probably Nebuchadnezzar realized that this tree represented him. And yet he called for the interpretation of it, either to confirm that or to deny it. Hopefully, because of what happened, his, his uh, magicians would deny what he feared. Probably Nebuchadnezzar realized he was the tree in the dream. And it says regarding the tree that the beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. Up to this point Nebuchadnezzar would have been pretty happy with the tree. Because it symbolizes the greatness of his reign, the generosity of it. What a great ruler he was. But he says, as he kept looking, an angel, an angelic watcher, or an angel, a holy one, descended from heaven. And now some action takes place in a scene that had been static up to this point. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree, and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. So you see, disaster is in the air. Change is coming. Doom is on the horizon for this tree. And yet, the angel said, Leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Now up to this point, the angel has spoken about an it, a tree. But he changes his words now, and he says, and let him. So clearly there is a personality involved, symbolized by this tree. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed 
from that of a mind, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And so this person symbolized in the dream is going to undergo a change. Nebuchadnezzar understands this. He hears the angel speak it. Uh, This person is going to experience what uh, psychologists call in our day zoanthropy. That is, a man, a person, who imagines himself to be an animal. It is in the recognized form of what uh, is called mental illness. And it says, let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. And now he gives the reason for all of this in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, you can see that the first half of the dream would have been very pleasing to Nebuchadnezzar. The last half was where the terror came in. He didn't fully understand what all this involved, but he knew that it was a a pretty bleak future if, in fact, he was the tree in the dream. And he confirms and says, This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now he says, Now you, Belteshazzar, the Babylonian name for Daniel, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, Nebuchadnezzar makes that statement in this chapter. He recognizes there's something special about Daniel. Gods here in the plural could mean that he was saying the spirit of the Most High God, Elohim, is in you. Or it may be that he was simply recognizing at this point that uh, the gods, as he viewed it in his polytheism, had uh, given to Daniel some special ability. And you say, well, didn't he earlier say that it was Daniel's God? Yes, he did, but that was a long time before this. Time has passed, and it seems as though, it seems as though Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten some things. So it says, uh, in beginning in verse 19, which deals with the interpretation up through verse 27, that uh, Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. You see, Daniel had an initial hesitancy in explaining the dream. There was a genuine sense of loyalty on the part of Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. There seems to even have been a sense of compassion for the man on Daniel's part. And he, he felt concern for Nebuchadnezzar's welfare. Because Daniel, of course, understood exactly what the dream meant. Well, the king begs for the interpretation. And so Daniel then gives it to him. And he recounts again the dream. And he says in verse 22, It is you, O king, this tree. It is you, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end 
of the earth. And so, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar's initial understanding, undoubtedly, of the dream was confirmed. He was the tree in the dream. Again, Daniel recounts what happened in verse 24. He says, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Now we see something a little more specific here. It's not just that he's going to have the mind of a beast, but Daniel says that he's going to think of himself as an ox. Uh, This is more specifically boanthropy. He sees himself as a bovine. Uh, Some of you ladies would probably now understand your husbands better. They're suffering from boanthropy when they act like an ox. Well, you see, that was Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Daniel is completely honest with the king as he explains the interpretation. And he goes on to say, Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar should have known that already. God has been gracious to this Gentile king. Can you name another king, except perhaps for Pharaoh of ancient Egypt, to whom God more graciously revealed himself than to Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar had not learned. He remained proud. He did not humble himself before the Most High God. And so God is going to humble him. And he says, And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Daniel does something now which is very courageous. He gives the king an exhortation. He says, Break away from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So Daniel now turns prophet and says directly to the king, You need to repent. And if you will repent, God may extend your prosperity. Thus the interpretation. In the next five or six verses, we have it fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar frankly says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king 12 months later. Notice that God extended his period of invitation for 12 months. That seems to be the thrust of this. God gave him 12 months to repent to change his ways, and to recognize the Most High God. Twelve months to humble himself. The king does not do that. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? You need to understand that Nebuchadnezzar was not exaggerating when he called Babylon great. 
He was up on top of his magnificent royal palace in the city of Babylon, from which he could look out over this magnificent city. Remember that Babylon is an ancient city. It is mentioned as early as Genesis chapter 11 to us, as one of the key cities of the world. In those years after that, it had periods of greatness and periods of decline. But now Nebuchadnezzar has built it up once again to a period of greatness. When you think of Babylon, you need to realize that this city was fortified. Nebuchadnezzar built part of the fortifications. There were double walls around the whole city. Remember, that was the most important uh, piece of uh, defense in that day. Double walls around the city, which were wide enough for chariots to ride on top of them. When we say around the city, you need to understand that these walls were 17 miles in length. It was 17 miles around the walled part of the city of Babylon. Now just try to picture that in your mind. Drive out to where your home is, then drive off another direction, and and just come back and add up about 17 miles, and you see how large the city was within the walls, and there were suburbs outside it. The walls of Babylon had eight gates. The most famous of them was the gate of Ishtar. Ishtar was one of the goddesses of the ancient uh, pantheon. Ishtar is where we get the word Easter, by the way. Because the uh, Roman church in the early years combined the worship of Ishtar uh, under Constantine, combined it with the worship of Ishtar with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it became known as the Feast of Easter. Interesting, isn't it? This gate opened onto a processional that was a thousand yards long. This processional, this avenue, was very broad and ornately decorated with glazed tiles and bricks, as was the gate of the city, Ishtar Gate. That gate, by the way, has been excavated, and it was ornate, pictured with bulls and dragons on glazed tiles. It must have been beautiful in its day. Within the city, there were uh, many temples. If you'd like to pick up a book sometime that uh, is interesting for background material, you might want to get a paperback that's called The Bible as History. Please understand when you read it that uh, it is written from a basically a liberal theological perspective. And so some of the dating and so on you, you will not agree with. But there's interesting background material in this book written by Werner Keller, as I recall. The Bible is history. And in the book he quotes uh, Herodotus, one of the ancient historians, regarding this city. <clears throat> Quote, The center of the city, says Herodotus, which is full of three- and four-storied buildings, is traversed by dead, straight streets. I think he means by that very straight. Not only those that run parallel to the river, but also the cross streets which lead down to the waterside. He goes on to say, Altogether there are in Babylon 53 temples of the chief gods, 
55 chapels of Marduk, 300 chapels for the earthly deities, 600 for the heavenly deities, 180 altars for the goddess Ishtar, 180 for the gods Nergal and Adad, and 12 other altars for different gods. In other words, Herodotus, as he gives us these words about ancient Babylon, tells us that this was a very religious city dedicated to the gods. Now we've said before that Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god was Marduk. And so in this city he restored the temple of Marduk, which was a quite a large structure. It was 1,500 yards, or feet rather, by 1,800 feet in size. And right next to it was a ziggurat, or a, a tower, that was built up. It was a tower that was also to the honor of Marduk. It was at its base 130 yards square. There were seven stories to this tower. The very top of it was a small uh, temple in honor of Marduk. And if you measured it from the ground to the very top, it was 300 feet high. That's as tall as a 30-story building. I was thinking about the Fauchet Tower downtown. I was told that at one time it was the tallest building west of the Mississippi till you got to Seattle. Now, I don't know how many stories are in the Fauchet Tower. Does anybody know offhand? How many? 32? So you see that this, this ziggurat in Babylon stood up about the height of the Fauchet Towers and was a, quite a structure. Babylon is most famous for its hanging gardens. The hanging gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These elevated gardens had many different plants and palm trees planted there, transplanted there from different parts of the empire. It had an elaborate irrigation system that lifted water from the, the level of the Euphrates River up to where these gardens were planted on the rooftops and the terraces. And it is said that Nebuchadnezzar built these to remind one of his wives of her, her native media, where there were lots of uh, hills and, and uh, greenery and trees and so on, which were not, too, uh, 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 were not flourishing around the city of Babylon, nor were, was the terrain such as she was used to. And so he constructed the hanging gardens in her honor. There were canals that brought water from the Tigris River to the city, even though the river Euphrates bisected the city. That river was spanned by several bridges within. Outside the city they built a large lake that was artificial. It was man-made. It was part of the protection of the city, but was a reservoir of water, which was important to them. So you see, when Nebuchadnezzar stood on the rooftop, and he said, is this not great Babylon that I have built? He was talking about some kind of a spectacular city in the ancient world. But just as he said that, God spoke from heaven. The words were still in his mouth when this word came. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. 
and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. I mean, that fast, the man lost his senses. From a great potentate who stood on top of the roof and boasted in the city, immediately he was struck with insanity and played the part of an animal. Can you imagine the impact of this upon his servants, upon the leading people who were around him day in and day out? And so he was turned out into pasture, literally. Probably there was a park, a sanctuary that was declared for him. They would not have wanted this to be known, most likely, within his empire. And so they probably protected an area where Nebuchadnezzar was allowed to roam and to graze and to eat the grass and the berries and whatever else he subsisted on during those days. And the dew of heaven drenched him. And the, the periods of time, if you look at periods later in Daniel, it's years. We assume it's years here. That seems to fit the context best. During those years, his hair grew until his hair had grown to the point they looked, his hair was matted and it looked like feathers on him. And the nails of his hands became so long and curled, as nails tend to do, that they looked like the claws of birds. It says at the end of that period, notice the result of all of this, beginning in verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar says, I raised my eyes toward heaven. It took him seven years to do that because of the judgment of God. But at the end of it, he raised his eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. The very first thing that Nebuchadnezzar does after his humbling experience, after his, his pride being shattered by God, is to worship. He worships God who is sovereign, God whose kingdom is eternal, he says, who lives forever and ever, whose kingdom is also universal. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing before God. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. A universal rule. And then he says, it's an unquestionable rule. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? He worships God. And then there is restoration. He says, My reason returned to me, my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors, my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. And so God restored, as he said he would, the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. And his testimony in the last verse is this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. 
Well, was Nebuchadnezzar genuinely converted? Will you and I one day see Nebuchadnezzar in the streets of heaven? Well, it says, the question is debated. This is Dr. Uh, Wood writing. The question is debated as to whether he may have come to the place of true conversion. It is important to notice carefully what he says in these verses in making a judgment. He goes on to point out, Nebuchadnezzar was continuing in his activity of giving praise to God, something apparently different from what had followed both his first dream and the deliverance of the three friends from the fiery furnace. In other words, he's pointing out that the verbs here are continuous. They're in the present tense. And he says, I continue to praise. I continue to exalt. I continue to honor the King of Heaven. My opinion, which is not worth very much, is that Nebuchadnezzar was genuinely converted. And that one day we will see him in Heaven. From this chapter, we learn just a couple of things that I want to point out in closing. First of all, what a warning we see here. Pride is a sin in the eyes of God. God detests pride. As sure as water is wet and the sun is hot, God will judge pride. Because pride robs God of the place that is due Him alone. And God is a jealous God. And so what we learn from Nebuchadnezzar is that we need to repent of pride in our lives before God breaks us to get at our pride. Pride is the essence of human sin, and God hates it. We see a warning, but I see quite an encouragement here too. Because Daniel, undoubtedly for about 40 years, prayed for Nebuchadnezzar. For probably 40 years he witnessed to Nebuchadnezzar as he had opportunity. And now he sees his prayer answered as this man recognizes and worships the true God. But think what an encouragement this must have been to the children of Israel. The children of Israel who were now in bondage for decades. Some of whom undoubtedly felt that their God had forgotten them. And that they would languish forever there in Babylon. But now they have written proof from the king himself that God is still on the throne and that their God reigns, as we were singing earlier tonight. Well, let's bow together in prayer. Would you join me, please? And now, Father, we pray that you will write these lessons on our hearts. May we learn from the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar to hate pride, to repent of it. May we see how you detest it in our lives. And wherein it is there, expose it, we pray, and give us hearts of repentance. That we might turn from it and walk in humility. So that we might not have to experience something like this. That you would take us through to break us. Lord, teach us that lesson. And then remind us that you're on the throne. There may be some tonight, Father, who are, are discouraged because they have languished, they feel. And they've gone through tough experiences and they've wondered where you are. I pray that what Nebuchadnezzar testifies will be an encouragement to them. That you reign, that our God lives and reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.